Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4? We're going to be picking it up in verse 8. And I'm always, I just, it's always a challenge for me to know what to talk about up here because there's so much to be unpacked, you know, after you've looked at the study for a week and I don't, you know, you guys are me talking in your groups. And so I'm always, what little part do you want me to talk about, Lord? Um, and I'm still not sure I got it right, but here we go. This week, we're looking at the study of, we're looking at the life of a woman whose name we do not know. She is unnamed, uh, but we have great insight into her identity as a daughter of God through the attributes that she exhibits, through her character. And like you and I, she's a woman who has and made choices. And her choices about how she responds to circumstances, to responsibilities, to adversities, and blessings reveal a lot about what she believes and who she believes. And we see how those beliefs affect her life. Now, in that, this ancient woman is no different than you or I. She really isn't. We too. We always have choices, although a lot of times we don't like the options. Amen? But we always have choices, and we have what we do with those choices will be the evidence of not what we say we believe, but what we actually believe, and more importantly, who we really believe. So pick it up with me. We're going to start in verse 8 of chapter 4, and we read, Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there and eat some food. And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall. Let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. And then he said to Gehazi's servant, Called this Shunammite woman, and when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak to the commander of the army uh, or speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And so he said, well, what is then to be done for her? And Gehazi answered and said, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. So he said to her, or so he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your manservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight as women who want to learn. Father, for all that we know, we know there's so much more we need to know. And you, as a source of all knowledge and wisdom and truth, God, um, are who we come to. So please pour your spirit out upon us. Give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what you'd say to each one of us so that we would leave here as women chained, changed and walking um, in all of your ways, Lord. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, some nuts and bolts, some framework here for us. Shunem was about 20 miles northwest of Elisha's hometown and about another 25 miles from Shunem to Mount Carmel. They figured the average traveler, kind of moseying on foot, could do about 15 to 20 miles a day. So Shunem was a perfect halfway point between where Elisha lived and where he very frequently went to Mount Carmel. So that's why 
She was seeing him pass by regularly. And our text says, say, bleh, our text says she was a notable woman. And the actual definition in the Hebrew of that is great. A lot of translations will translate uh, her description as a wealthy woman. <clears throat> so this is a woman who has more than enough means to be comfortable. She has a big enough home and an area to do a little home improvement project and, and add on a space for guests. She has um, plenty of provision to provide for feeding guests regularly, and her husband trusts her to oversee the home and offer hospitality. He's in agreement with her plan to minister in a special way to this man of God. And so while this woman is well off, she's secure in marriage, she's secure in her home, what she does not have, we see, is a son. But interestingly, she doesn't share this lack with Elijah. Instead, she shares her contentment with him. I dwell among my own people, is her response. Essentially, hey, I'm good where I'm at. I'm good where I'm at. Her response shows that she's not looking for some sort of payment. She's not looking for favor from him, what she could get out of serving him. Her motive for serving was what she could give away. And although she did lack a son, we see that she definitely possessed a measure of contentment. You know, even when it seems that a person has it all, no one ever really does, do they? No one ever really has it all. Everybody has some desire. We all have some lack in our life. And what's notable about this woman is it hasn't stopped her from having a full and fruitful life that is free of bitterness. You know, we're not told specifically that she yearned for a child, but she was a woman. And especially in that culture, you know, it would be seen as a reproach for a woman not to be able to bear children, although we are told her husband was the old one. But, of course, she must have yearned. I can't imagine that she wouldn't have. And when we have unfulfilled desires, whether they're for children or relationship or a ministry or place of influence or whether it's for a job or healing or security in our homes, it seems like it's our nature, just our human nature, for those things to become the largest thing in our field of vision. You know, I mean, what is it that keeps you up at night? You know, are you counting your blessings one by one at three in the morning? If you are, you're more spiritual than I am. You know, that's not what keeps me awake at night. It's that thing, that one, usually that one thing. There's that one big thing. And if we keep that focus on what we don't have, then we can no longer see the value or the joy or the opportunities, the vision for anything else, because all of those things are eclipsed. They're just behind that one thing that one lack that we don't have. But this woman was able to have contentment because her field of vision was broader than her desire. Her focus was on what she did have and what she could give. And this is important, she made the choice to respond to those things that she was able to see. And she doesn't simply just see things, she takes note of them, she considers them. And, you know, we do all tend to notice those things that we really care about, don't we? It's easy to notice those things that we care about. For instance, I will always notice if there is a dog or a lizard in close proximity to me. And that is because I love dogs and hate lizards. But I rarely notice bugs because I'm not really, unlike I know a lot of people, I'm not particularly afraid of bugs. I don't really notice if there's a bug around. And while I think birds are lovely and sing and all pretty and all of that, I don't normally stop and pay attention. Maybe I should but I don't because I'm not particularly interested in them. The things that we care about are the things that grab our attention. 
And our study has a lot to say about hospitality, and you'll talk about that in your group, and it is really important. Hospitality is really, really important. But more important than the action of hospitality is the heart that motivates it. Six times in the New Testament, we're told to be hospitable. And there's no directive that says that it must be a lavish spread of organic and gluten-free fruit foods served on an elaborate tablescape. It simply means to care for those around you. It just means to care for those around you. And you will share, you will show that care to those around you better with a takeout salad from Urban or a sandwich tray from Costco at your kitchen table than not having people over to your home at all. And while going out for coffee or taking someone out to dinner is great, but there's something about the intimacy of gathering in a home where you're undistracted by other conversations that just really ministers to people. I was extremely convicted because you can ask my friends, they will tell you, and all, I am the least hospitable person. I have 100 excuses why you can't come to my house, but I've been convicted of them all because I studied this this week. You know, in all, the heart to care for people is what actually needs to be the directive for hospitality. And hospitality is the outflow of a heart that actually notices and then cares for others. And here's what I see as another important choice that she makes. I like that we see her seek her, her husband's approval for her plans. You know, while she is the homekeeper and the, he is the head of the home. And what she's doing by asking for his permission is seeking to maintain that harmony here in the home out of respect for his role more than she is motivated to run after her plan. And we would all agree it's a very good plan. And what is important to see here is that while she considers a need that she has noticed, she has not forgotten or set aside the role that she already has. She makes a choice here. And by asking and honoring her husband's role, and then by honoring the roles that she already has been given, she honors the Lord who's called her to all of those. Now, not all of us have a husband at home to consider when we're making choices about whether we should serve or not, whether it's extending hospitality or serving in some other way, but we all have the Lord. So be diligent. Be diligent to seek him when you notice opportunities to serve, when you hear or see of a need that's that's taking place where you could lend a hand before you commit. Be sure to seek him first, to take heed to the rules, to the rules, to the roles and responsibilities you already have before you commit to any more. And it might be a good idea then to seek counsel from someone who won't tell you what you want to hear, but could perhaps give you better insight into some things that you might not be considering. Because the leading of the Lord doesn't always come with detailed instructions. And it seems that we, some of us at least, some of us, me, maybe a lot of us, have a tendency to maybe overcommit. You know, we have that, I can do that response. We see that need. Maybe it's a woman thing. Maybe it's kind of a nurturing thing and we like to take care. I don't know. But we have to be careful to be discerning about what our gig is and what it is not and be led by the Lord in those things and not by our emotions. So we read the home improvement project is complete. Elisha takes his rest there. Now, prophets don't know everything. He doesn't have any supernatural insight into what he might be able to do to bless this woman. And he asks, and finding out there is no son, so he promises her a child. He promised her a child, 
And we read, so when then the woman did conceive, she bore a son, and when the, when the appointed time had come, of which Elijah had told her. Pick it up in verse 18, it says, and now the child grew. And it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his fathers, my head, my head. So he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon, and then he died. And she went up, and she laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door upon him, and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so he said, Why are you going to him today? It's neither a new moon nor a Sabbath. And she said, It is well. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward, and do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she departed. She went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And so it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now and meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. And now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And so she said, Did I ask of a son, my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Her response initially upon receiving this promise of a child was, don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. And I believe the best insight that we have to her response in verse 16 is that she repeats it again to Elisha after the child's death when she says, did I ask for a child? Didn't I say, don't lie to me? In fact, the New Living Translation translates verse 16 as, O man of God, do not deceive me and get my hopes up. And I believe this is less than, this is less of a lack of faith than a heart that's been disappointed and doesn't want to be disappointed again, especially because it's exactly the same thing she repeats when the child dies. You know, she's not Sarah, whose husband has been promised to be the father of a great nation. She's a woman who provided a little side room to rest for a prophet, expecting nothing in return. And getting a baby for an Airbnb stay is a pretty extreme remuneration, right? Who would expect that? But that was the promise, and the promise was fulfilled. But disappointment came. You know, promises of God... Promises of God can be really tricky things. I think they can. They have been in my life. The when, the how, and the what it's for of the promises, those are all up to a sovereign God. And while we should receive and hold on to those promises of God, we should hold on to God himself more because it doesn't always play out like we expect. You know, she did conceive and had a son only to lose him. And for this woman, this promise was fulfilled and it was only to be snatched away on a hot day when she least expected it. And to her, it seems like a promise made was not a promise kept, at least not the way she would have considered it to be. But let's talk about some of her choices here. Why does she take the child to Elisha's room? And why doesn't she tell Elisha or her husband, uh, her husband, 
her husband or Elisha's servant what's wrong. Well, it's obvious that the child has died. She knows, there's no question that the child has died, but nobody else knows it. No one else knows it, and Elisha's room is private. It was probably, maybe I said this, maybe I didn't, kind of a side room. It was said it was up on the wall, probably like we'd call a studio with a separate entrance. So nobody's going to go in there when Elisha's not there. No one, she puts him in there where no one will discover this poor little boy's lifeless body. And time here is critical. Time here is critical. What was the weather like? Well, most commentators believe it was hot. It was harvest time of year. It's hot enough to possibly even be the reason for his illness. And according to Nelson's, Bible, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, it says, due to the hot climate of Palestine, dead bodies decay rapidly. So burial usually took place within a few hours of, after death. And if someone died late in the day, the burial took place the next day, but always within 24 hours after the death. And the fact that she was leaving would suggest to everyone that the boy was safe, that the little boy was okay, maybe napping or something. And no doubt she feared that if her husband found out that that child was dead, the burial routine would be put into place, that they would quickly prepare his body and bury this child. But she is compelled to seek out Elijah. He's already been the vessel of work, of, of the work of God that you know only God could do one time in her life, and now she needs another miracle. So the, t- the child dies at noon. Elijah's 25 miles away on Mount Carmel. And if anybody realizes the son is dead, burial will be imminent. She needs time. So she puts him where no one will find him. And she says, it is well. It is well. But there's a couple of reasons why she says it is well. Again, she's not wanting her husband to take action. And also, her word choice here is really interesting. It's very revealing. If you look in an interlinear Bible, which is like the literal, it doesn't read like regular English because it's the literal rendering from the original text. And in the in a linear Bible and the King James Version then and some other trans, translations, they render what she says and she said, it will be well. It will be well. And here is her faith in action. She's seeking God's intervention. And she almost, she seems, could she be? I don't know. Like she's speaking from this place of faith and a place of hope, from an expectation that something good is going to come and a trust in the Lord, and they cannot find and bury that child. Another reason we see is the kind of action that Gehazi took in verse 27 as he pushes her away when she appeals to Elisha. Sometimes, when we, are, when we need to get to the Lord, we hit opposition. When we get into things with people, when we need to take stuff to the Lord. You know, sometimes you need to keep the details to yourself. And you need to just take that thing to the Lord. Because we need to be able to come to him without distraction and without dissuasion. Sometimes we meet a Gehazi of sorts. Somebody who's going to discourage us from seeking the Lord. Or someone who's just going to take up time or bring some kind of confusion. Or draw away our time and energy and focus from what we should be doing. Which is simply seeking God. And in that time like her, where she grabs him and clings him to his feet. We need to persevere. We need to grab onto God. We need to press in and cling to God despite the interference. His grace is sufficient for us to do that. And initial attempts by both Gehazi and Elijah don't revive the child. And you know what? 
you read through it and he goes and he lays on the kid and he gets up and he prays and he lays and then there's sneezing and all kinds of stuff. I know you read it. And, you know, there's this no good explanation for all that. There's just no good explanation for that. You know, you can read into something, the number of sneezes or how long it took or these different things. I don't know. I think if God really needed to know, it'd be in black and white and I'd be okay with that. And I'm okay with not knowing. But here's something that we do need to know. Elisha did many miracles. And like Jesus, he never did the same type of miracle with the same method. Every encounter, every move of God through Elisha was different. And that's a takeaway for you and I. Because we have to learn to trust God to move in our lives in ways that are in accordance with his character that's revealed in scripture and not expecting God to replicate what he has done in someone else's life or circumstance. That's not what we hold on to. Because she gets her son back. And I know women that didn't. You know, and those children were prayed for and promised children too. And then inexplicably, the unthinkable happens. And God loves those women that suffered that loss just as much as he loved her. And I have no good reason to offer. And I don't dare offer some spiritual platitude about why their situation turned out differently than hers. You know, he gives us lessons from the Shunammite. He gives us lessons from the word, but he does not give us all the answers Now, sometimes answers do come in this lifetime. Sometimes they don't. Now, for her, we do see how God uses this trial, this test of her faith, this circumstance in her life later on to restore something to her yet again. Will you turn with me a couple pages over to chapter 8? The scene is, prior to what happens in chapter 8, Elisha's been going around telling an unjust king, an apostate king, God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming because of you and what the people are doing for the sin of the nation. They're not worshiping God, and God is going to send a famine on the land. So let's read what happens in verse 1. Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, not your husband, and he's not mentioned. We might infer there that she's now a widow. We're not sure. And stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine. And furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And she went to make her appeal to the king for her house and her land. And then the king was talking to Gehazi, a servant of the man of God, saying, tell me, please, all the great things Elijah has done. Now it happened, hmm, as he's telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, then there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, oh Lord, my king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, she confirmed the story. So the king appointed a certain officer to her staying, restore all that was hers and all the proceeds from the field from the day she left the land until now. God's timing is perfect. Who could orchestrate that? 
Who could orchestrate that? Not only is her and her son's need met by the warning, they escape and don't suffer in the famine, but upon returning, her legal status is restored, and even then some by an unrighteous king. Why? He is moved because of her testimony. Not her story of who she is and what she did, but what her God did. Now, this king doesn't ever repent or change his apostate ways, but he did act favorably, as he should have, with the legal and moral right after hearing what God has done. Now, this woman, despite being a godly, faithful, generous follower of God, did not live a life without trials, did she? You know, she spent, I don't know how many years, maybe a few. It doesn't take much when you want a child and can't have one to feel like an eternity, I think. But she dealt with that. A child was given only to be taken, restored to life, but then to lose a husband. Had home and property only to have to flee and leave it. And that's our life too, isn't it? I mean, our stories are full of hills and valleys, the gifts and the losses. And testimonies, like this woman's testimony, serve as evidence of God to an unbelieving world. They serve as encouragement as we share them one to another when we need our hope renewed. And they can be a comfort to our own hearts when we forget sometimes that God is good. Now, I shared a story about this with Denise, and she told me to share it here. And I have no idea where I'm at with time, but get the hook. I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do an abbreviated version. But here's how God used this woman's story and her testimony of what God did for her and in her response to that, how he used it in my life, a little God story of my own. I spent the summer wandering around in a maze of opportunities, seeking God um, for the way through these different things that were maybe coming, should come, step out in faith, return to, I don't know, seeking the Lord for this, how to get through this, and where he wanted me to be. And I had some big decisions to make, so I finally... After seeking the Lord and praying for quite a while, I believed I I saw the path, I knew the destination, had a promise from his word. And then my son-in-law, who I love and have loved as my own son for more years than he's been married to my daughter, tells me that they're moving out of the state. And I won't go into all the how and why, but this did not go with the plan that I thought God had shown me and the promise that he had given me. You know, I, the thought of my family moving farther than 15 minutes away was difficult for sure, but it brought a lot of confusion and ultimately even anger toward God, not toward them, but to God, because I kept saying to him, why, after all that waiting and all that seeking and all that praying, why did you tell me one thing to do something completely different? Why? So I find myself again on my porch wrestling with God through the maze, trying to find my way to the what and the how that I thought I already knew the answer to. And after a fruitless time of prayer, or so I thought, I decided it's time to get productive. So I did know that there was one thing I would be doing. It was this. It was, I had a teaching schedule. I knew one thing, there'd be some Monday nights, some Thursdays I'd be sharing with you. So I thought I'd go and get my study and start accumulating my resources that I use as I study. And I looked at my schedule to see what women I'd been assigned. And of course, first I had this one. I didn't get it at first. But as I read this account of a woman who, like me, had but one child, um, who lost that child and was still able to say, it is well, it struck me. Not the first time I read it. Not even the second time I read it. 
probably about the third or fourth time I read through it, it struck me. Now, my child, understand, my child was not dead. This is not, the, the, I'm not relating in this way. Of course, it's hardly the same thing. I would never insinuate that it was. What was so troubling to me was that I thought I had heard from the Lord. I thought I had a promise and different things had happened. And the confusion that that all brought was worse than the loss of what I thought he had promised me. And I read this and I thought about it and I said, could I say, Lord, it is well? Could I say it will be well? Well, yes, I could. Yes, I could. Because reading through this, though my trial was nothing like hers, God reminded me of something. I realized that I had promises that despite my confusion or despite any other trial, I could say it is well. You know, my granddaughter Audrey is five now. And when she was a baby, she believed that sleep was the enemy. And for about the first six or seven months of Audrey's life, they lived with us. They were transitioning from one house into another. And so they lived with us. And many a night... I would be the last in line after her poor, exhausted parents who had to get up and go to work in the morning, could not get her to sleep. I'd be the last in line, and they'd say, here, you try. And every night, and I don't know where it came from, there would be one particular song that I would sing to her. You know, and over the years, for every nap time, for every time she had a sleepover and spent the night, sometimes when we're driving in the car or just playing, she'll say to me, Gigi, sing our song. And so I sing the song. And as I read this account, and I think about that song full of promises that I wanted my first grandchild to know, I could say, it is well with my soul. Now, I'm not going to sing it to you, sorry. But I'm going to read it to you. I wish I was like Debbie and had it all printed out, but there's only one Debbie, isn't there? (laughs) When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, Roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this bless assurance control. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. And the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, and even so, what? It is well with my soul. Listen, the circumstances under which that song were written rival those of even the Shunammite woman. Horatio Spafford wrote it after Scarlet Fever took his young son of four from him. Two years later, in 1873... He decided that his family should take a holiday somewhere in Europe, and they chose England, knowing that his friend D.L. Moody would be preaching there, and he was delayed because of business, so he sent his family ahead. His wife, their four children, daughters 11-year-old Anna, 9-year-old Maggie, Margaret Lee, 5-year-old Elizabeth Bessie, and 2-year-old Tanetta. 
And on November 22, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, the steamship was struck by an iron sailing vessel, and 226 people lost their lives, including all four of Spafford's daughters. Anna Spafford survived the tragedy, tragedy, and upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to Spafford, beginning, Saved Alone. Spafford then sailed to England, going over the very location of his daughter's death, and according to Bertha Spafford Vester, the daughter born after the tragedy, he wrote, It is well with my soul on that journey. That is a man that believes God's promises. And those promises in that song are my promises, and they are your promises. You know what? Sometimes his promises are long in coming, or sometimes they don't come to pass like we would expect. But when we remember what he has done, when we remember what he has promised to do, we can say, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And you know what? Sometimes we read that song or sing that song through tears. That's very true. But the words and the promise of, those, of that hymn stand. Those promises stand. It is well. It will be well. It is well. It is well with my soul. And let it be well with yours also. Heavenly Father, we come before you as women. You know what? Everybody's got a lack, Lord. Everybody's got a thing. Everybody's got that thing that we need to come to you for, that we need to say, gosh, Lord, help. For those that are grieving, for those that are worried, for those that are standing by while loved ones struggle with illnesses or they struggle with them themselves, for those, Lord, who are in periods of uncertainty with a job or family, Lord, I pray right now by the power of your spirit, you would say in their ear so sweetly, it will be well. You can trust me, it will be well. I promise. And Lord, when Satan should buffet and trials should come, and all of the promises of tribulation that we are going to have in a fallen world, Lord, help us to hold onto you to know that when things seem like they don't make sense, when you don't seem to make sense, that you are in control, you are a good Father, you are a sovereign Lord. And when we cling to you, when we look to you, when our eyes are on you, it is well with our soul, Lord. And we just commit the rest of our night to you. I pray that you minister to the women, Lord, that you just stir them to good conversation in their groups, that They would find friendship and fellowship and a deeper truth in your word through that time, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.